you have your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We shall continue with our studies through this episode. I'll read, pray, and then we shall consider verse 26 and 27 of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean by that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for, the build, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is, properly work, is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your, manner, your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that 
he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not, give, uh, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that Spirit divine, you may attend our prayers, that you may enlighten the eyes of our hearts to receive your word with meekness this morning. We know that we have no strength of our own, we have no power of our own, because the natural man does not understand the things of God. We, they are foolishness to him. And Lord, apart from the work of your spirit, these things are blind to us. And we pray that by your spirit, you may quicken us so that we may understand your truth. Grant us a spirit of no revelation and knowledge in you. Help us, Lord, that your word may come with power. You may grant me the unction of your spirit. You may grant my hearers faithfulness, faithfulness to strongly consider what your word says. Forgive us, Lord, for all our sins and cleanse us from every unrighteousness. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue our series through this practical section of the epistle to the Ephesians. In the first three chapters, Paul has unfolded the glorious truth of what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings that have been bestowed on God's people. So in the first three chapters, there's not a single appeal or instruction or exhortation for us to do anything. Paul in the first three chapters tells us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We come to chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the, call, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he begins to give instructions and callings and exhortation. This morning, I'd like us to consider verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We've already seen in verse 22 and 24 that the Christian is urged to put off your old self and to put on the new self. What does Paul mean by that? What does it mean to put off the old man? The old man is the person you used to be prior to your Christian conversion. The old man is an regenerate man, dominated by sin. And we are called to put that man away. 
The new man is a person that we have become in Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul is reminding us that Christian salvation is so radical that it's like being born again. Because Jesus Christ makes all things new. God's work of salvation reverses the terrible effects of the fall due to Adam. God's works of salvation restores us to that moral image and likeness of God. That is the Christian. The old has to go. The new has to come. We are brand new men and women in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need to cut off everything that belongs to our former manner of life. And we need to adopt a new set of clothes. We need to strip off the filthy, dirty garments, everything that belonged to our former life, and we need to put on a new brand of clothes. The old Christian life can be apprehended in these phrases, putting off and putting on. The old man died, and we become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Paul reminds us also that the new man is not yet perfected. That is why the instruction is to take a decisive action to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Casting off the old way of life that we used to live. Putting on the new life. Putting on like a new set of clothes. Paul, having set forth that principle, goes on to set forth in practical details in everyday living what it means to put off and to put on. You see, it's not enough for me to stand before you this morning and to tell you, put off your old man of life and put on the new, uh, the new man. Paul is going to describe in details, in a specific and definite manner, what it means. And so it's essential for us to understand in practical, everyday experience what it means to put off and to put on. We left off in verse 25 and verse 25 tells us therefore having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another. I want you to see from the onset of this instruction that there is common, there's something common in these examples and it is divided into three parts. Look at verse 25. That there is a negative command. Put away falsehood. I notice again that there is a positive exhortation. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And then lastly, there is a reason. Why should we put away? Why should we put on? There is a reason for we are what? Members one of another. Why is the example in verse 25 put on the top of the list? Why does Paul emphasize the sin of lying? It is because of what he has said in the previous verses. Look at verse 22. He says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through what? Through what? 
deceitful desires. The old man is corrupt through lying, through deceitful desires. But the new man, look at verse 24, but put on the new self created after the likeness of God in what? In true righteousness and holiness. The new man is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. So that the thing that characterizes your former life is deceit. The thing that should characterize your new life is what? Truth. This reason is because we are a body of Christ. We saw that there's nothing destructive to the church than what? Than lying. And then we come to the second example. He uses the same principle. There's a negative command, there's a positive exhortation, and there's a reason. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Notice the positive command. What is the positive command? Be angry. What is the negative command? And do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Then verse 27. What is the reason? And give no opportunity to the devil. And so the sermon is titled Sinful Anger versus Righteous Anger. Sinful Anger versus Righteous Anger. And the first thing we are going to look at is the positive exhortation. Look at what he positively instructs us to do. He says what? Be angry. When was the last time you were angry? What does it make for you to be angry? What do you do when you get angry? You see, Paul is using here an imperative. And he's literally telling you to be angry. You may think that Paul is making a mistake here because anger is one of the characteristics of the old man of life. And he's told us to strip off that man of life. How then can he exhort us here to be angry? Surely this is one of the things we need to put off. How can this be? Anger has many facets. It can include irritability. It can include argumentative spirit, bitterness, violence. But there is a righteous anger. And so often anger is thought of something, is, is often thought of as something negative and destructive. If I told you that he's an angry person, you don't always think as something positive. But there's something good about righteous anger. The truth is anger in and of itself is not necessarily sin. The Bible makes it clear that anger is a positive virtue. It is a God-given instinct. And it is part of the divine image of God that was given to us at creation. And so anger in itself is not sin. When it is directed towards that which is evil and wrong, it is a good thing. That is why Paul goes on directly to, to say what? Be angry. He's drawing a distinction between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. He commends one and he, commend, he condemns the other one. And so you can be angry and not sin. And that is only if it is a godly anger. But the problem with us is we do not know how to respond when we get angry. We have the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
time and time again our Lord Jesus Christ displayed anger especially towards the religious leaders of his day the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy in Mark chapter 3 verse 1 he says again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him verse 3 and he said to the man with the withered hand come here and he said to them is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm to save life or to kill but they were silent but he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to them stretch out your hand he stretched it out and his hand was restored the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him you see our Lord was filled with anger towards the legalistic attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees often our Lord Jesus Christ is depicted as a weak docile person people speak of him as the gentle Jesus meek and mild and people depict meekness as weakness even in movies they portray him as weak yes Jesus Christ is meek is gentle is forgiving is a bruised reed that he will is a bruised heel that he will not break the Lord Jesus Christ was angry he was angry at those who refused to repent of their sins in the strongest possible terms our Lord Jesus Christ with, with, was filled with fiery indignation against all ungodliness and unrighteousness yet he was a specimen of sinless perfect man a good example is the cleansing of the temple when Jesus went to the temple court people were buying and selling sheep and oxen in his father's house and he was so incensed that he drove them out he overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons and he says in Matthew 21 verse 13 it is written my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers so it's clearly here that Jesus Christ displays anger but it's not a sinful anger it was a true and righteous indignation anger in and of itself is not sin people have today perverted the love of god and taught people that god does not hate sin that god is not angry with them you see god's anger is still against sin because god does not change God is never going to change. Society may change, people may change, churches may change. But what the word of God tells us about the anger of God does not change. I want to tell you this morning that God is an angry God. It is one of his attributes. His anger is against sin. It is a righteous anger. You see, God is love, but that is inherently that his nature but his attribute of wrath is what is in response to our sin so that if there was no sin we will not know about the wrath of god 
because you will not be angry about anything, isn't it? And God created in us an ability to react in displeasure to that which is wrong because we are, we are created in the image and likeness of God. And so you need to understand that anger is a good thing. We see in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14, God is angry against Moses. He says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, uh, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. In Deuteronomy 1.37, Moses is telling uh, the nation of Israel, he says, Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you, shall, you also shall not go in there. Numbers 22, verse 22, God is angry against Balaam. Deuteronomy 29, verse 20, it says, The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. First Kings chapter 11 verse 9. Even Solomon, that man greatly beloved by the Lord, we are told, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the people of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Psalm 7 verse 11, very common verse. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So, Anger is part of the character of God. It is a divine attribute. And you could say that the Bible is all about the wrath of God. Because he has revealed from eternity past that sin will be punished. Sinners will be judged. And they will face his anger. Man continues to live in sin because he is ignorant of the true nature of the anger of God. You see, the wrath of God does not find any parallel in sinful human experiences. The wrath of God is opposite of the wrath of man. God's wrath is controlled. God's wrath is hatred towards evil. His reaction is against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of man. His wrath is permanent hatred of sin. It is not a mere decision of will. It is not uncontrolled anger like man. So that without the wrath of God, God will cease to exist. Although God loves us, he is eternally angered by our sin. So anger in and of itself is not sin. And so Paul is exhorting us here to be angry. He's exhorting us to a true holy and righteous indignation. You may be wondering what should Christians be angry about? And the answer is sin. The thing that we should be angry about is sin. You should be angry and not sin because you are angry about sin. You see the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness should exercise holy indignation against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Be angry, says the Bible. In Psalm 97 verse 10, All you who love the Lord hate evil. If you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you'll have a true godly concern 
a, a true godly hatred towards sin. You'll be incensed by it. You'll hate it with a moral outrage. And that anger is very good. Because a person who never gets angry is not a biblical Christian. So we need more righteous anger in our day. When you see corruption in public offices, when you see abuse of power, it should enrage us as Christians. Righteous anger says, this is wrong, this is unbiblical. And I want change because it dishonors God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I quote, and how greatly this exhortation to anger is needed in the world today. Is not one of the greatest tragedies in the world at this hour, the failure to feel moral indignation and wrath because of things that are happening? Is not there a fatal tendency to be complacent and to explain everything away and to remain indifferent? Even though we hear people on the air and on public platforms deliberately teaching evil, be thou my good, still there seems to be no protest. We seem to have lost the capacity to be roused morally by a sense of indignation. This is to me one of the major problems in the world today. There has been a steady decline in morals, not only in behavior, but in outlook and in reaction. We merely shrug our shoulders and allow sin to go and rebuke, end of quote. So there are things, brethren, that should rouse us. There are things that we must renounce. The absence of shame, the absence of righteous anger, he says there is the hallmark of degradation and sinfulness. Yet our Lord was angry when he saw the manifestation of sin. Is this not one of the sins that we commit if we fail to do it, brethren? Is this not an imperative to be angry? To be angry when there is immorality, when there is sin? But rather, we've grown in a society where we are conditioned to think that it is okay for people to do certain things, to do evil. Have we lost that sense of shame? Have we lost moral outrage that we are complacent and we hardly make a sound? Obviously, the church is partly to be blamed for this moral degradation because of the failure of the church to stand for the truth. We have to stand against the tide of moral wickedness. We have to speak out against unrighteousness and wickedness of man. Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14 verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. All around us we see the works of darkness. We see the enemy at work. But the church is complacent. It is indifferent. The church is sleeping. Spurgeon says, A lie travels around the globe while the truth is putting on its shoes. We are called brethren to function as the salt and light to this world. Jesus said, you are the salt of this earth. You are the light of the world. Not only are we commanded to proclaim glorious truth of the gospel, we as the salt of the earth are to prevent the spread of moral decay and deterioration. You see, salt is a preserving agent and it prevents decay. 
And that is the function of the Christian in the society. We are sprinkled. All of us here come from different places. We've been sprinkled in this society so that we act as moral preservatives. Are you acting as a moral disinfectant in that office, in that school, in that home, in that neighborhood? Let me say also that what you get angry about says a lot about you. There are people who get angry at the referee in a football match. They are screaming at their television set. There are people who get angry to the point that they bully others in the social media. Are those the things that should make you angry? There should be anger in us when we speak about evil, isn't it? When you speak about drunkenness, there should be anger in your voice. When you speak about corruption, there should be anger in your voice because it is a righteous anger. There are things that are worthy of all our anger. But what you find in the church today, men and women are not angry about anything. May God create in us a holy anger, a righteous indignation. Be angry, says the word of God. This is a command. This is an imperative. We come to the negative command. So having dealt with the positive exhortation there, look at the negative command. It says, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry but do not sin. On one hand, he commends righteous indignation. But on the other hand, he condemns unrighteous anger. So there's a distinction here between righteous and unrighteous anger. What exactly is Paul warning us about? What is this sinful anger that we must avoid? In the first place, I believe that we should, we should never be bad-tempered. As Christians, we should not, never be bad-tempered. Sinful anger is to be irritable. It is to be hot-tempered. It is altogether wrong. It is sinful. It is condemned everywhere in the word of God. Be angry and sin not. When you're angry, make sure that you are angry for a righteous cause. Be sure that your anger is for the glory of God. Be sure that your anger is because of the disobedience to God's command. And often Christians we find excuses for this sinful anger. People say, this is the way that I am. This is how our community is. We are angry people. This is naturally the way I, I was created. I'm a quick-tempered person. In other words, you're telling us that we have to put up with you. Dear child of God, that is not an excuse. You've been born again. If, you, if you're a new creation in Christ, the old is gone. The new has come. We should not be bad-tempered. Paul in Galatians chapter 5 gives us the list of the work of the flesh. The things that we need to put off and anger is part of it. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, he says, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We should never be bad-tempered. We should never be easily provoked. Paul in, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, 
Love is not irritable or resentful. You see, a person who is easily provoked is liable to fall into sin easily. Love is not easily provoked. James takes up the same theme. He says in James chapter 1, verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James is telling us that we should be reluctant to become angry. Because the line between righteous anger and sinful anger is very thin. In the qualifications of elders, Titus 1.7, we are told that for an, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. An overseer should not be angry about everything. Be angry, but do not sin. Sinful anger is such a terrible thing. And you need to deal with it. number of distinctions here I'm going to give between sinful anger and godly anger. Please listen, Kindling. Sinful anger seeks to punish the person who has done wrong. Godly anger seeks to restore the person who has done wrong. Sinful anger does not care about the other person's point of view. It is demanding. It is immovable. Godly anger is firm, but it seeks to find alternatives. It seeks to be understood. Sinful anger cares about what happens to me. Godly anger cares about what happens to others, and that includes me. Sinful anger holds grudges. Godly anger knows the value of forgiving. Sinful anger omits its own weaknesses. Godly anger seeks to admit its own faults, its need for improvement. Then he says, but then says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. We should never let the sun go down on our wrath. We should never sleep at night without dealing with our anger. If you fall out with a brother or a sister and you are angry, your thoughts and the thoughts are preoccupied with anger and you fail to resolve the matter. You're giving the opportunity for other sins to prop up. The sooner you resolve the matter, the sooner you prevent bitterness and hatred and anger towards another person. So that if the situation is left undealt, it becomes worse. So that we need to be honest before God, bring the matter to God and confess our sins. If we allow angry thoughts to dwell in our minds, it will break down our fellowship, it will break down our communion, it will break down our relationships. Psalm 66 verse 18, If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not have listened. God will not answer your prayers. God will not hear you when you pray. And so we need to deal with it straight. Remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, so if, you have, so, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go 
first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's only when the reconciliation has taken place that we are fit to come into the house of God to offer our worship, isn't it? We must deal with this sin straight away. We must never let the sun go down on our anger. You see, our anger reveals who our master is. If the anger is all about me, it reveals that I'm preoccupied with self, that I'm exalting myself to the throne. If the anger is stirred up, it's because of the need for the glory of God. If the anger is because of sin, sin in the world, sin in, in a person's life, then Christ is my master. So dear child of God, your image of God is being restored. That should make you angry at the things that God is angry about. I should say also with a caveat that believers in the world have not yet arrived. Often, our anger is mixed. We can justify our anger thinking that it is pure, but it is mixed with selfishness. So our anger is complicated because as believers, we can show flashes of being created in the image and likeness of God. At the same time, we can reveal the depravity of our fallen nature. So that in, the, in a marriage setup, there can be misunderstanding. There can be anger between two believers. The believers can be selfish. They can have mixed motives. And so we need to watch over ourselves, isn't it? Do not allow your anger to control you because it will harbor bitterness. Your anger can arouse anger in other people. Your anger can seduce you to do evil things. Anger is powerful and it is seductive. Part of the reason we get angry is because anger promises you security. Anger deceives you that there is something under threat that you are about to lose and you need to react. Anger seems to give solutions to people, isn't it? But all pride is involved. It is idolatrous. It feeds into our pride. Anger blinds us. You can have fear. The reason you could be angry is because of fear, uncertainty. The reason you could be angry is because you're anxious or you're doubtful. And those feelings express themselves in anger. Anger can control us to the point that you want to control others. You live with an angry person. Before you open your mouth, you have to edit what you're what you about to say. You cannot just simply speak freely because you can make them angry. And so it is absolutely corrosive in a relationship. Begin to doubt yourself. Begin to think that you can make that person angry. You begin to feel guilty whenever you speak. You begin to feel guilty in your mind, even, the, even over things that you should not be feeling guilty. 
that angry person becomes like a god to the other person because they control you they dominate you they control how you react how you speak how you conduct yourself and it's easy for you to be provoked in anger as well isn't it so anger tends to generate anger you speak harshly to someone most likely you're going to get back harsh response anger does not resolve anything on the other hand it builds up resentment if if your child was making noise and you shouted at them to keep quiet you may think that you have solved the problem that the house is quiet but you're building resentment in that child anger divides people it pushes people away so james says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of god and so you have the positive exhortation be angry the negative command be angry and do not sin and then lastly verse 27 we are given the reason and give no opportunity to the devil what the bible tells us here is that we should avoid sinful anger because the loss of control gives the devil a footing it is the greatest opportunity for the devil we give control over him we give control to him we put ourselves at his disposal remember in the garden of eden how the devil acted on eve very subtly he turned eve against god he stirred up the feelings of resentment and hatred towards god that god was too restrictive that god was keeping things from them we must never give the devil an opportunity we must never give place to the evil one deal with the situation immediately brethren romans 12 verse 19 21 beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head do not overcome do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good see this is the way that we are to deal with those who treat us unrighteously isn't it love our enemies do good to them bless those who curse you and then lastly application the first application is we need to understand the wrath of god the anger of god when you understand the anger of god then you can understand the righteous anger you need to understand that jesus christ is the groom the church is the bride of christ and you can say the whole story of the bible is a story of marriage jesus god being the husband to the nation of israel jesus christ being the husband to the church which is his bride It is a marriage that begins in adultery in Genesis chapter 3. But it also ends with a wedding in Revelation 21.
God knows our experiences. If you're angry about anything, God knows it. Look at how he's betrayed over and over again in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3. Look at how he's betrayed over and over again by the nation of Israel. God knows what it means to be agitated. He knows what it means to be in pain, to face abuse. But his anger is not uncontrolled. If his anger was, uncontro- uh, was uncontrolled, he would have destroyed the world long ago. God comes to the garden of Eden. He comes not to destroy Adam and Eve, but he comes to do what? To destroy the enemy. To restore the bride. To destroy the problem and rescue the relationship that was destroyed by Adam. God's anger is motivated by love. His, his anger is corrective anger. It channels love to rescue, not to destroy relationship. God's anger is mixed with loving invitation. Come back. Come back, nation of Israel, over and over again. It is consistent with his love. It is not a wild mood swing. It's, Jesus, it's the cross that makes it possible. At the cross, God is angry at our sin. He punishes his son for our sin. It is through the cross that our sinful nature is destroyed. At the cross, God separates us from our sin. God destroys the power of sin. Christ Jesus suffers in our place. He gives us a new heart. He rescues us from the power of darkness. The anger of God is a redemptive anger. It does not seek to make things worse. It seeks to make things better. It is positive. It has no sin in it. So that in a marriage setup, when you're angry at your spouse, is that a cause for you to want to separate from them? No. Because if that is how God will have treated us, we will be dead in our sin and trespasses. But in a marriage setup, when there's anger, there should, it should be a restorative anger, a redemptive anger. An anger that does not seek to destroy, rather an anger that seeks to bring things together. Another application, secondly, God's anger is a sin-hating anger. God addresses the real problem by attacking the problem and not the relationship. When you are in disagreement with your friend and it culminates into an, into an argument and anger, you address the real problem. You don't attack them. God's love is a sacrificial love. It costs his dear son. And his love is, is not sinful. And so we should have a holy anger. It should not be a selfish anger. It should not be about us. It should be an honest anger. It should be an honest anger because you speak the truth. Brethren, we are big sinners. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to help us. Our anger may be honest. It can be timely. Because even today, we are told that God is angry every day with the unrighteous, with the wicked. 
but it is a timely anger because he knows he's patient enough he can wait he's long suffering because he knows that there's a day that is going to to destroy those who are wicked and Bible says that he does not wish he's, he's long suffering with it. he does not wish that any may perish and so he picks his timing because he has redemption in view and then lastly we ought to be Christ-like in our anger. We ought to be Christ-like in our anger. Study the cross. Ask yourself this question. If Jesus Christ went to the cross, he was treated far worse that I will far worse than I will ever be treated. How can I be angry at someone? Why should I be angry when sinful men treat me? Not as bad as I've treated the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is our only solution to our anger. When you understand how much God has loved you through the sacrifice of his son, then you'll understand the, selfish, the selfishness of your anger. And so we ought to be forgiving. We ought to extend mercy to others because mercy has been extended to us. The psalm we read this morning, Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his kind deeds. He who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. You see, forgiveness helps the other person to become better. In true forgiveness, you're seeking to genuinely understand the other person. You're willing to be patient as they reveal themselves. Because you also recognize that you're a sinner. You're a sinner forgiving another sinner because you've been forgiven and you empathize with them let us pray lord we pray that you may help us as your people for we know that we are susceptible to sinful anger grant us your grace lord help us to love the things that you love hate the things that you hate do a work in us lord that we may be a godly people, a people who walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And help us to be angry at the things that agitate you, the things that, that are despicable in your eyes. Help us, Lord, for these things we pray in Jesus' name.